Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to the man, the myth, the legend, J.J. Abrams and his works and his universe. My name is Matt Crandall, here with my co-host Marcelo Inostroza. Today we are taking a look at the season 3 finale of Alias, episode 22 entitled Resurrection, written by Jeff Pinkner, directed by Ken Olin, where finally all of the things that have been going on in the third season with uh, Katya, Nadia, Lauren, Vaughn, all start to come to a head in a big action-packed finale that, spoiler alert, if if you didn't know, we always do spoilers on these things, what's the point otherwise, um, finally takes Lauren from, you know, maybe redeemable supervillain to irredeemable supervillain and ends up having Vaughn shoot her dead multiple times in a horror-style finale where she comes back like Michael Myers, refusing to die. But this episode opens with a very Mission Impossible-esque scene where Lauren, in a full-on Sidney Briscoe disguise, um, comes in, steals some files from the CIA, and makes her way out. And then later in the episode, Sid dresses up in a Lauren mask um, to fool Sark. So there's a lot of Mission Impossible-esque stuff going on here as we sort of ramp up the action and try and get this whole Vaughn's wife mess out of the way so that Vaughn and Sydney can have a clean slate going into season four. Marcelo, I know you liked Lauren at first, then felt betrayed when they made her supervillain. How did you feel in this final episode where she got murdered? Uh, now, you people who are listening to this right now might think that I'm a masochist. And even before your brain goes there, I will just tell you I'm a masochist. I love seeing people suffer on screen for some reason. I have a little bit of masochistic in me. With yep. that being said, I did like the fact that they totally leaned into Lauren's uh, uh, bad woman persona. I mean, for God's sakes, when she makes her way out of the CIA after uh, impersonating Sydney, she shoots a poor guy, like a random guy who asked her if she was okay the second she walked into the street. She also shoots Marshall, which is like a pretty big, pretty big moment because it's a guy we actually care about. That is true. But um, the the other thing that I did find interesting is in the final competition, in the final confrontation between Sydney and Lauren, it didn't make sense to me, at least it, it didn't track with me as, you know, why did Lauren tell Sydney? that final piece of information. She didn't have to. Since Lauren was introduced, we understand that Lauren has always seen Sydney as a threat to mm -hmm. her relationship with Vaughn. So I thought that was a little bit of exposition that didn't have to be there, although I do understand why Jeff Pickner put it there. But to me, that kind of distracted just a little bit from the final confrontation between uh, Sydney and Lauren. Also, I didn't like the fact that the way that uh, Lauren ultimately made her exit, if you're going to kill someone, you want to shoot them in the head. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I, I, but I completely understand, you know, ABC, uh, uh, you know, the centers, I get it. That, that, that is a little bit, that, that is a little bit much, but when I want to kill a character in a story that I'm writing... 
and I don't want to bring the back. I always go for the head. Um, but that's just, you know, a little minor gripe that <laughs> I, I didn't like. It's, it's minor. It's, it, it's nothing that, uh, took away from my overall enjoyment of this episode. And you mentioned too, Matt, this episode has a very Mission Impossible tinge to it. And I just love the use of disguises in this episode. Also, I love the use of the voice analysis thing that Sydney points out to Sydney points out to Sark after she reveals uh, herself to him in the jail cell. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what? I like this. I I really really dug this episode, which was surprising to me because uh, if you listened last week, you guys know that I was completely disappointed with what they did with Lauren overall. Yeah, and I think. You know, that makes this episode more fun is that they do focus a lot on the the spy and the espionage stuff. And there's nothing better than, you know, when Sark, Sark rats out Lauren and gives her up. And then Sydney reveals that it was actually her that was in the cell. It's such a satisfying moment because Sark gets his and he's being a coward at the same moment. So it's like a double whammy. Um, so that's fun for us as an audience. And of course, you know, the, the stuff with Rimbaldi and Sloan and Nadia starts to move forward a bit. Um, but yeah, that final confrontation with Lauren that's taking place on the top of the hatch from lost almost, it feels like, because they've got like this weird dig site thing going on and, uh, like a big shaft. And when she, you know, is fighting with Sydney and she's like, Oh, I know something you don't know. And it's like, okay. And then she's like, there's information that you were never meant to see. And here's exactly where it is. And here's the code. It did feel like a little bit much. And I know that they wanted to have some sort of cliffhanger because they were going to kill off Lauren. That couldn't be the cliffhanger. So they give this final little tidbit where Sydney shows up at the very end, opens the, the safety deposit box in this bank and reads some shocking black light classified CIA documents and starts to cry. And then Jack walks in and says, you were never meant to see any of this. And so it leaves us like, Oh my God, what was that? What was in these files? And you know, we aren't there yet, but when we find out what was in those files, it feels like whoever set up that final scene got outvoted when it came time for season four, when they were like, here's what I think was in there. And they were just like, nope, we're just forgetting that. We're going to gloss over it. We're going to make it this and then just put that whole storyline to bed. It doesn't matter. Um, But in this episode, it feels like a big moment. And Garner kills it when she's, you know, really crying as she's reading these documents. You feel her pain and you wonder what is in there. But that showdown with Lauren where she's almost superhuman and has to be shot 18 times um, feels like a bit much. But it's supposed to be a catharsis for Vaughn. And like I said, showing the the Sid and Vaughn shippers that, you know, they they're done with the lore and stuff and we can move on from it. The other thing about that final confrontation between uh, Lauren and Sydney at the very end, after uh, Lauren goes down to visit Juliet in the in the pit, uh, for those of you who've seen Lost, yeah. you get it. Um, I was very struck by the by the choice of music that. Uh, Michael Giacchino used mm-hmm. in that final embrace between Sydney and Vaughn. It had a very, very lost, uh, lost tinge to it. You could hear like subtle notes to the to the lost score 
Like I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know if that was just me or, or did you hear some of that as well? No, I definitely think there are some similarities. And I thought that the score that Chikino has been using has been getting better and better each season of Alias. And there definitely are shades of, of that familiar lost sound that he would develop more, you know, on that show. But definitely there is some shades of it crossing over. One thing, one thing that came to my mind about the way that Vaughn's character was developed this season is that, uh, this is something I wanted to bring up last week, but I completely forgot, is that once we find out that Lauren is a British bad woman, to use my term from last week, mm-hmm. Vaughn really goes from, I love my wife, to, I may not trust my wife, to, I want to kill my wife. There's no middle ground. The one thing that I love about the way that the Jack Bristol character is ultimately defined and written is that, you know, the second that Arena shows up, um, Victor Garber does such a good job at showing the conflicted nature of the way that he really thinks about his ex-wife. I wish that the writers would have told Michael Vartan there. You see, I remember his name again. Yeah. Uh, to to I wish that they would have told him to to act a little bit more conflicted as to the way that he felt about his British bad woman wife. If he would have felt a little bit more conflicted, I. It's not that I would have felt for Vaughn's situation ultimately when he had to shoot Lauren because. Truth be told, you guys know that I don't. I don't really like Vaughn. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. um, but that to me would have gone, would have worked a little bit more if he would have shown a little bit more con- uh, conflicted emotions towards Lauren once he found out what her true goal was or who she was working for, uh, uh, you know, in the first place. I. I, I thought that that was a missed opportunity by the writers. I, I think that that's a, a, a plot hole that they didn't want to address or they didn't even want to bother with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you uh, What do you think about that? No, I think you're right. I think they just didn't feel like spending the time on it, or they just weren't thinking about it. Um, you know, the other thing that like uh, I'm kind of conflicted about with this episode too is that. Um, the dynamic with, you know, Irina wasn't really in this season. So they brought in Isabella Rossellini as her sister, Katja, to sort of be like the the stand-in for Irina. And Katja started up like her thing with Jack, and we're not sure whether we can trust her or not. And in this, um, you know, she had stabbed Vaughn, and she set a trap for Sydney, and she tries to kill Sydney. Um, but Sydney sort of gets the best of her and takes the bullets out of the gun and then shoots her. And I just feel like it would have been so much more powerful if they had found a way to bring back the mother character instead of just this, you know, evil aunt who they don't do much with, which again, feels like, I don't know if Lena Olin just didn't want to come back and she was out or what, but there's a lot that this episode does right, but you can tell this is the first finale of Alias that JJ didn't write. And it just doesn't feel as powerful or have those strong family ties that the JJ finales usually throw in there. As much as I liked it, 
Um, I will agree with you that um, um, her character. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name right now. I'm I'm, I'm losing my brain here. Um, her character didn't resonate with me at all. Like I could I could have cared less mm -hmm. uh, about her character or why she was brought in there. The interesting thing that I the the the, the interesting little quirk that I thought was interesting was when she goes to shoot Sydney and she finds out that the gun is empty. I was like, that's not the way you clear a weapon. You took out the clip. You you took out the clip, but you forgot about the one in the pipe. Yeah. Uh I you know, I, I, I just have to assume that when Sydney cleared the weapon, she she took out the clip and she took out the one in the pipe. Because if she forgot to take out the one in the pipe, it would have been a very, very short show. <laughs> um, I'm gonna assume that yeah, we just uh she did that without us noticing. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. That's that's me. That's me nitpicking. This episode brought up a section of Alias that I haven't really thought about uh, um, yet. And that section is uh, what belief does to people and what people will do because of what they believe in. And what I mean by that is... I started to really think about the psychological, the the um, the psych, the psychological uh, mindset of Sloane in this season. Right? Mm -hmm. He reminded me um, of someone that you, uh, Matt, know very well. I'm sure you've seen this movie a thousand times, like I have. But he reminded me of Belloc from uh, from yep. Raiders of the Lost Ark, specifically when he goes to see his daughter and plead with his daughter. To come in, to, to to come on this search and look for this the uh, Rimvaldi MacGuffin, right? Yeah, the sphere of life or whatever. Well, yeah, yeah, where, where he says it's a ball and it has all the answers to the universe, right? Yeah. In that particular scene, all I could hear is Indiana. This is what we got into archaeology for in the first place. <laughs> right. It's a radio for talking to God. Yeah. You know, so I I found I found that scene to hit me that it hit me in such a profound way not for what actually what was happening but for the parallels that i made to sloan and belloc in that specific scene and it's very interesting to me what the power of belief does to people and the things that they will do mm -hmm. because of what they believe in you know yeah uh you know to the to the same extent we could say that about religion, but we're not going we're, we're not going to talk about religion in this podcast. I mean, you could just say that the power of belief is very, very swaying to what ultimately people do about their emotions and what they believe in. And I, I thought that that was a very interesting little note that uh, I picked up there. Yeah, for sure. And there, there are lots of sort of Indiana Jones esque comparisons because of the Rambaldi and the fact that everything they're chasing is a MacGuffin and all that. And Sloan and Belloc sir, certainly do have some stuff in common. I do think that what they tried to do with Sloan this year, where last year, you know, everything that happened ended up being as a result of Sloan's manipulation and ended up being, even when SD six went down and, the CIA thought they had won. It turns out it was all a manipulation by Sloan to, to reset the board. This season was more of kind of like 
half of it was the redemption of Sloan. Like they tried to make him more redeeming. They put him on the good guys team. He went out on missions. Um, and I feel like they were trying to soften the evil side of him so that they could use him more like a member of the team going forward. Um, but then they still throw in those few shades where, you know, he will do anything when it comes to the quest for Rambaldi, whether it's right or wrong, because he believes anything that he has to do to, to uncover these secrets is worth the price. So as much as they did some rehab on him to redeem him, we still know that like deep down, he will do whatever it takes when it comes to Rambaldi, because he believes that is his life mission. Um, and I, they didn't take it all the way in this. There's still more for him to do. Um, so I'm interested to see where they take Sloan in the future now that they have gone from, you know, entirely mustache twirling villain to a guy whose allegiance will be a lot more fluid depending on who can help him in this ultimate quest that he's on. The attempt by the writers, as you put it, to make to, to, to soften up Sloan and make him more of an anti-hero you might not be surprised to hear this, but that didn't work for me one bit. Right. I, I still think that that guy deserves a bullet in the head somewhere. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, you know, all that, all that being said, the reason why I feel so vile about Sloan is the way that he was written, first of all, in the earlier seasons, and the way that he's acted. If, mm-hmm. if if he wasn't acted so well, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. I'm not. Yeah. I'm Ron not that Rif- guy. Ron Rifkin. Thank you. Is the if, actor. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. If Ron, if, if Ron Rifkin didn't play him so well, I wouldn't be so invested in him seeing his end. And I, you know, I, as I said last week, and I've said in previous episodes of this podcast, I think that's a credit to the overall character construction of Sloane. Um, but if I may, the, the final stinger of this episode really saved the season for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, re- really saved the uh, second half of the season for me because when I saw Sydney sitting there reading through the files, I was like, "Is this going to be a pro- is this going to be about Project Christmas or is this going to be about another another nefarious thing that Jack or Arena did?" Right. And the thing that I found hilarious is that it's called Project Forty Seven, right? Mm-hmm. And if you guys out there know any pop culture at all, 47 means something to you. And I'm like, wait a minute. Is she part of the agent program? You know? <laughs> right. Uh, it, yeah. If you guys play video games, you'll know what I'm, you'll, you'll know what I'm getting to. Hitman. Right. But uh, that's neither here nor there. So I found it very interesting that whoever made up that file or, or the production designer... Uh, or the writers, for example, when they introduced the number forty-seven, I wonder if that if that went through their heads. Will will there be members of our audience who connect this to Hitman? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, you know, I wonder if they thought to themselves, is that something that we want, or is that something that we don't want? Because another a spy program did something very similar to that. As a matter of fact, I think it was a blatant ripoff. Um, uh, uh, James Cameron did a spy series uh, in the early 2000s called Dark Angel. Mm-hmm. And if you watch that thing, 
That is a complete ripoff of the Hitman mythology. I don't care what you say. Even even though James Cameron is a genius, but I'm like, I'm calling foul on that. <laughs> um, but I'm not above of I'm not above creators who do uh, derivative derivative material of other things. But I really like the fact that in that particular scene, again, Sydney is reminded that although she's trying to trust her father, she can't completely trust him because he's still got skeletons in his closet. And I'm very interested to see how their uh, um, uh, father and daughter relationship will progress as we move towards uh, more seasons of Alias here. That's the interesting thing. You know, I think that that end stinger is supposed to possibly shake that up. And we'll have to tune in when we talk about season four starting next week to see whether that's the case or not. So if you were going to grade this finale, Marcella, what would you give it? Uh, I, I really, really liked it. I, I love the Mission Impossible stuff. I loved everything with, uh, my British bad woman. Um, uh, she was just great. The fact that she just went nuts. Yeah. I, 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 I liked that a lot. There are some negatives that I mentioned before, but with all that aside, and, uh, I, I thought this was great. So if I would grade it, I would give it a, a C minus. Okay, and I'm going to go B. I'm going to give it a B. I thought that the espionage stuff was fun enough, and the fact that now Lauren is dead and gone um, had me cheering and uh, very interested to see what they decide to do next season. Um, And knowing that J.J. is coming back for the first two episodes of season four to kind of give his farewell to Alias means that our listeners should definitely tune in when we talk about that premiere next week. If you want to ask any questions of us, hit us up on Twitter, hashtag radio eight, one five, any comments, that kind of stuff. If you want to get in touch with me personally, I am at Matt Crandall on Twitter, Marcella, where can the good people reach you? If uh, you guys want to talk to me about anything uh, in reference to JJ Abrams or anything, anything else whatsoever, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. Perfect. So that wraps up the third season of Alias. We start to get into the last half, the end game of the series, when we start talking about season four out of five seasons next week. So definitely be sure to tune in. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. And we'll talk back soon.